our scene opens with a large, bright, glimmering, bowl-like structure. As our very expensive, high-definition cameras zoom in, we see four figures timidly standing near the bottom. We shall call them Dorothy, Tin Man, Stuart Crow, and the Cowardly Dave. They are seeking an audience with a great and powerful pod. You again. Why did you trouble the great and powerful pod? Please, sir. We've done what you asked us to. I learned all my constellations. And I'm not afraid of the dark anymore. And I built a telescope out of my left arm. And we've looked for Mars in the night sky ever so hard. Oh, you have, have you? Very illustrious. Yes, sir. So we'd like you to keep your promises, sir. If you please, sir. Not at first. I'll have to think about it. Uh, coming back later. Oh, I knew you were nothing but fiddle-faddle. Please don't pout. It's not nearly as cute as you think it is. You've had plenty of time. Yeah. Silence. The great and powerful pod will download in its own time. Oh, you're slower than dial-up. Do you presume to criticize me? You ungrateful creatures. I should banish you to my space for... Uh... <laughs> pay no attention to the man behind the voice changer. Oh my, who are you? Well, I, I, I am the great and powerful, uh, I'm the pod. Hi. I don't believe you. Shouldn't you be from Oz, anyway? I'm from New Zealand. Learn to distinguish the accents. You're a fraud? A humbug? A cheat? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, what they said. Uh, I'm afraid so. I'm sorry. But what about your promises? Oh, that's easy. You've been listening to the Jodcast for months now. Lion, you're not afraid of science anymore, are you? No, uh... Hey, you're right, I'm not afraid. And Tin Man, you actually love astronomy, right? Why? Yes, I do. I must have a heart. And Scarecrow, you've earned your degree right here. Here it is. Ooh, it's from the University of Manchester. I've always wanted to go there. But... What about me? How will I ever get back home? Home? Back to Kansas? Where everything's in black and white and no one's ever heard of the Jodcast? Why would you want to go there? Oh, let me hear the Jodcast one more time, then I'd like to leave. But of course. The Jodcast. Keeping actors in business since 2006. With Nick Rattenbury, Stuart Lowe... Tim O'Brien, Ian Morrison, Megan Argo, and David Alt. The Jodcast. December issue. Hello and welcome to the December issue of The Jodcast. Uh, this is David Alt in our London studios. And uh, this is Nick Rattenbury here in uh, Manchester, actually at Jodrell Bank. And this is Stuart calling in from Italy. Yes, two countries, three cities. Yes, and we hope that the we hope the internet holds together <laughs> to allow us to do this. On this month's show, we speak to Cormac Purcell, who is a postdoc at Jodrell Bank about mazes. Should we say what mazes are, Dave? Uh, we'll say that in the actual introduction to the thing itself. Okay. For the time being, we'll just let it dangle tantalizingly in front of our listeners. And it Good. is That's worth it is worth finding out what mazes are. I must say, just to, just to, as a teaser for our listeners. Uh, we also have news of our events marking the fiftieth anniversaries of certain astronomical things. We have your favourites, Ask an Astronomer and the Night Sky. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, transit of Mercury captured by SOHO, the Large Millimeter Telescope opens in Mexico. Atlas powered up for the first time, and the Mars Global Surveyor spacecraft feared lost. On the 8th of November, the planet Mercury passed directly between the Earth and the Sun in an event known as a transit. The planet, with a diameter less than half of that of the Earth, is very much closer to the Sun than our own planet, and completes an orbit of the Sun in only 88 days. Occasionally, the orbits of Mercury and the Earth line up in exactly the right way that we see Mercury cross the Sun's disk. The last time this event occurred was on the 7th of May 2003, 
while the next such transit is not until the 9th of May 2016. The only other planet which transits the Sun, as seen from the Earth, is Venus, the only other planet whose orbit is smaller than the Earth's. Observers in America, Australasia and the Pacific were lucky enough to see this transit of Mercury, while the timing of the transit meant that Europe, Africa and large parts of Asia missed out altogether. The SOHO spacecraft, a joint project of the European and American space agencies, was also able to observe the event, and captured the total five-hour transit with its cameras. You can find a link to the images on our website. A new telescope under construction in Mexico was formally inaugurated by the country's president on the 23rd of November. The Large Millimeter Telescope, or LMD, is situated at a height of over 4,500 metres on the summit of an extinct volcano known as Sierra Negra. The site for this telescope is so high because it will operate at wavelengths of between 0.85 and 4 millimetres, a part of the electromagnetic spectrum where absorption by our own atmosphere can be a problem. Building the telescope on top of a mountain reduces the amount of atmosphere between the telescope and the top of the atmosphere, and reduces this absorption, allowing reliable observations to be carried out. Once completed in 2008, this telescope will help astronomers investigate planetary atmospheres, regions of star formation, distant galaxies and the cosmic microwave background, radiation left over from the Big Bang. The largest superconducting magnet ever built has successfully been powered up for the first time. This giant magnet is a vital part of the ATLAS detector, one of the major particle detectors being constructed for CERN's Large Hadron Collider, a major new particle accelerator which is scheduled to begin operations in November 2007. The ATLAS detector will help physicists investigate what happened in the early moments after the Big Bang, and why the universe we can see is made of matter rather than antimatter. The ATLAS barrel toroid consists of eight superconducting coils, each one weighing over 100 tonnes, 5 metres wide, 25 metres long, and shaped like round-cornered rectangles, all cooled to a temperature of minus 269 degrees Celsius. It will work together with other magnets in the ATLAS detector to bend the paths of charged particles produced in collisions at the Large Hadron Collider, enabling important properties to be measured. Mission scientists at NASA fear that the Mars Global Surveyor spacecraft is probably lost and unrecoverable. The orbiter stopped communicating with Earth on the 2nd of November when it went into safe mode after having trouble with a solar panel. Engineers have not been able to contact it since then. On the 21st of November, NASA asked the rover Opportunity on the surface of Mars to try to communicate with the spacecraft, but there was no reply after two days of attempts. The spacecraft was launched in November 1996 and has operated for longer than any other spacecraft sent to Mars. Global Surveyor's powerful camera has returned thousands of images over the last ten years, discovering evidence that liquid once flowed on the planet's surface, and surveying potential landing sites for future exploration. It was designed to function for just two years in order to map Mars systematically. It is one of four spacecraft currently orbiting Mars. Its companions are NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, Mars Odyssey, and ESA's Mars Express. And finally, the Leonid meteor shower put on a good display this year. As well as the normal peak of this shower, there was predicted to be a second increase in meteor numbers two days after the main shower this year. Early reports of observations from the Society for Popular Astronomy's Meteor section suggest that the additional secondary peak was not quite as spectacular as it was predicted to be. The Leonid shower has normal rates of around 15 meteors per hour in good observing conditions. The second peak was predicted to occur at 4.45am on the 19th of November, with rates of around 100 meteors per hour. Observers who were lucky enough to have clear skies report that some activity was seen, but not quite at the high level predicted. Thanks, Megan. And perhaps we should tell our listeners of exciting developments to the Jodcast news. Absolutely. Well, in the year that the Jodcast has been running, 2006, the year of the Jodcast, we have now multilingual news. Well, it's not, it's not quite the first. Um, the first thing that we, we did was provide all the different segments of the Jodcast as individual downloadable bits. Mm -hmm. um, but now we've gone a step further and we're turning the Jodcast into a huge monster. And we now have the Jodcast News in six languages, I think we're up to now. Six the languages. Language English. Yep, six languages. You heard it, that, heard it correctly. 
So we have French, Portuguese, Hindi, Chinese, and Farsi as well. So all our listeners in Iran will be able to listen in to the news. Yes, let's go. We should point out how we actually did this. We uh, um, we asked very nicely the range of international students here at Jodrell Bank whether they wouldn't mind translating the news as written by Megan Argo into their uh, respective languages. So it was a, it's a community effort. It's not as if uh, Dave, Stuart, and I can speak all these languages, of course. As, uh... <laughs> no, we most, most certainly can't. But we are learning. <laughs> yes, yes. So at the moment, you can only get the, the new segment of the Jodcast in all these different languages. So we may be adding more languages a bit later on. Um, it depends on how many more students we can press gang. Sorry, um, persuade nicely to to translate for us. Yeah, so all you people out there who are listening to the Jodcast, uh, maybe you know somebody who has French as their native language or perhaps Chinese. Perhaps you should uh, suggest that they tune into the Jodcast and listen to us in their native tongue. Let us know how it goes. And also, over the last year, the website for the Jodcast has grown and grown, and one of the most recent additions, just last month, was the new Astronomy Media Player. Yep, that's something that I made mainly for, for myself, really. It's a bit selfish, I know, but I like to listen to astronomy podcasts, and so I wanted to put them all together in a nice, easy-to-navigate-between to place. So I, I've created a what I've called rather lamely the Astronomy Media Player, I'm not entirely happy with the name, but it'll do for now. So how does it work? If you go to the Jodcast website, on the left-hand side, there is a, a little button you can click called Launch Astronomy Player. And if you click on that, up will pop a, a window, and that will give you a whole range of astronomy podcasts to listen to. Well, I've lost count now of how many we've got. There's about 20 or so different astronomy podcasts. All the different segments of the Jodcast are on there as well, so again, you can listen to the news in Hindi if the mood takes you. So you're very generously uh, uh, linked to uh, lots of other podcasts. It's not just the Jodcast. So you're linking to it's who, not who just else? The Jodcast, shall, shall, no, we, shall we mention a few names or should got... we just leave people to check it out for themselves? We can mention a few names. We've got um, Slackopedia Galactica, as they're called these days, previously known as Slack Astronomy. There's also Astronomy Cast. We've also got Planetary Radio, which is made by the Planetary Society in California. Um, we've got a range of the podcasts that NASA produce. And a few in other languages, such as um, Don Le Ciel, which is in French, made by a planetarium in Canada, and Urania. It's made by the Institut National di Astrofisica in Italy, and that's in Italian. So the world of astronomy at your fingertips. Fantastically cheesy there, thank you. Yes, <laughs> and you can search them all as well. Oh, wow. So it's, it's useful if you want to find something about pulsars or... Active galactic nuclei, say. You can go and search for audio and video. Brilliant stuff. But one of the things that is so great about Jodrell Bank, other than its uh, range of uh, multilingual people who will quite happily record news segments in different languages, is the fact that we've got different students uh, and postdocs doing a range of different uh, areas of research. And our interview this month... Uh, is with Cormac Purcell, one of the postdocs at Jodrell Bank. And Nick, uh, would you like to tell us what you were talking about? Right, I was talking with Cormac about masers, a sort of physical phenomenon very similar to uh, a laser. We all know what a laser is, right? Sort of these bright things that you can... The things you find in your CD players. Yeah, the things you find mm. in your CD players, and you can point at walls and stuff like that. It's all very good. Very bright, very you know straight light, if you like, very intense light. Wonderful stuff. So there's an astrophysical equivalent called a maser, and I talked with Cormac about what a maser is. Thank you very much for being with us today. That's no problem. So tell us, what is a maser? Sounds very similar to laser, but tell us what a maser is, please. Laser stands for light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation, and maser stands for microwave amplification of stimulated emission by radiation. Indeed, a maser is very similar to a laser. In fact, it's almost exactly the same thing, except at um, a different wavelength. Instead of using optical or infrared light, it uses microwave light, much the same frequencies that come from your microwave oven at home, maybe a little bit shorter wavelength. The most common masers exist uh, between wavelengths of about 1.2 centimeters and about a couple of millimeters. 
The way a laser, or indeed a maser, works is um, through the action of light on a gas. Uh, you can think of the molecules in a gas um, as being little batteries which you can charge up. If you take one battery, charge it up, you can get it to emit a spark. You take many of them, put them in a pile, and they'll all, they can all discharge at once and make a larger spark. Uh, in a similar way, light that's pumped into a gas can be made to uh, be amplified uh, by the action of the molecules themselves. Um, something that happens uh, within molecules is called stimulated uh, emission, where one photon emitted from one molecule can cause a second photon to be emitted from uh, another one. And this can sort of happen in a chain reaction, causing a cascade which then amplifies any light that's pumped into the gas. Now, similar conditions actually uh, happen in space, and therefore you get a maser. It's just in microwave light rather than in optical light. What's special about the light coming out of the laser or the maser? Okay, well, this very special thing about laser or maser light is that it is monochromatic. That is, it's all of the same color. Now, another property it has is that it's coherent, so that every little wavefront that reaches your telescope or your eye when you're looking at a laser um, is exactly in step, marching in step with the rest. So it becomes an extremely powerful beam, and it's very easy to see across large distances, as I'm sure you've seen if you've seen any of those laser pointers which point at the stars in the sky. So how do you make a maser? Well, essentially, you need a whole lot of gas, and that's basically it. What happens is you get a large column of gas that is pumped, so all of the individual molecules in the gas are excited by some sort of energy source. Now, that energy source can be a heat source, uh, can be a shock wave that causes the, the molecules to collide, or it can be light of a different color. This is why lasers are, or masers are so powerful. You can use many, many things to excite them. And if the conditions are right, then what's put in on one end is amplified out thousands of times, but concentrated in only uh, light of one freak frequency. Okay, so let's go back a step. How would you make, let's say, a laser or a maser here on Earth? Because we've got these things on Earth. We've got lasers, as you say, laser pointers, lasers in the CD-ROM drives and all that sort of thing. How would you make a laser? How would you make a maser using materials on Earth? Okay, well, it's actually quite easy to do. You would take a bottle full of gas. Now, this isn't sort of normal gas. It's quite pure, and it, it will be quite similar to what's in your fluorescent lights, except instead of passing electricity through the fluorescent light to get it to emit light, what happens is you surround that, that little tube full of gas uh, with, for instance, a flash bulb. So you pump the flash bulb on and off. The molecules in the gas absorb the light from the flash bulb, and they're charged, just like the batteries I was talking about earlier. And then you get lasing uh, action happening. And the important thing when you're making a laser is that you have a really long path length, because the amplification of the light that you get depends on the distance that the beam of light travels through the gas. On Earth, it's not very practical to... Um, have a laser that is a couple of miles or a couple of hundred meters even long. Um, what you do instead is you take two mirrors, put one on each end of the tube, and you bounce the light back and forth so that to the, to the light beam it seems as if it's traveling hundreds of meters. At the end of its travel it's become intense enough that it actually passes through one of the mirrors which has been specially silvered to allow only a small fraction of the light through. In space, however, you don't need these mirrors. Gas clouds in space are so unbelievably huge that it takes often many, many years for a light beam to pass through. Now, in the case of masers, all you need is a couple of hundred meters, or in the case of astrophysical gas, gas clouds, probably a couple of hundred thousand kilometers. And conditions where you get similar gas all the way through are fairly easy to find in some of these places. The difficult thing to find is the pumping source. Let's talk about the pumping source. You mentioned that these masers occur near some sort of input energy source, so like a star or a shock wave or heat. So what does that mean for where these masers exist, where they form? Well, essentially for astronomers, it means that they form in all of the interesting regions. As you know, astronomers love to study 
the birth and death of objects. And this is the most common place that you find masers. One of the most uh, in interesting places you find them is, for instance, uh, around the death throes of an old sort of so solar-type star. You find masers of a thing called uh, silicon monoxide. And what happens there is the star throws off its outer layers as it uses up its uh, hydrogen-burning fuel. And these outer layers move at different speeds and they impact into, into each other, causing shock waves. These shock waves form the pumping mechanism for the SIO uh, masers. And there have been some very nice ob observations done where um, movies have been made of these masers as they, the spots where the masers occur spread out from the star as the shock wave expands. And you can learn about the processes happening during that event just by observing the masers. How can you do this? I mean, the maser itself is made up of molecules, gas molecules of different type, in this case, silicon monoxide, presumably, amongst other things. How does knowing what the maser is made of help you learn about where it came from? Okay, there are a large variety of masers coming from very different types of molecules. And the advantage that that gives the scientist is that the masers are formed under different conditions. Uh, depending on the type of molecule that is mazing. So, for instance, my field is star formation. I study masers of uh, methanol and of water. Water masers are primarily found in regions where there's shocks. So these things are found in uh, bipolar outflows from stars at the head of these uh, outflows where the, where the outflowing material is impacting into the interstellar medium. Methanol masers, on the other hand, are formed where infrared light is strong. So they're pumped near to the star in the hot gas that has been heated up by the star. So often these things are thought to trace disks. So a knowledge of where and under what conditions the masers are formed can give you information about the different object in which they are formed. So in that case, methanol masers form a probe of disks and water masers form a probe of outflows. If you see a maser in a particular environment, what do you learn? What are the physical measurements that you can make? Okay, from the, the first obvious one is to look at the maser's strength. There is some good correlation between the actual brightness of the maser and the intensity of the radiation that's causing it. The other thing that you can look at, and that's probably more useful, is what speed the maser is moving at. So just like an, amb an ambulance traveling towards you and you get the increase in sound or in frequency due to the Doppler effect. A similar thing happens for masers. You can look at the relative colors of the masers and try and match that to the Doppler effect to see whether they're moving at different speeds. And often what these, these masers will show is that there's a, a difference in speeds in a sort of linear way right the way along um, a set of masers. With, with a little uh, modeling, you can often show that uh, these masers are in fact in a disk that's rotating around a star or that the outflow is um, speeding up as it, uh, as it moves away or slowing down. So you can tell about the kinematics of the gas around the star or whatever the object is that you're studying. Do you learn anything like density, temperature, that sort of thing? Masers aren't particularly good for um, studying density or temperature because the amazing action, the amplification, doesn't allow you to sort of work backwards and find out how strong the pumping source was or how dense the gas gas was. You, what you need there is you need normal sort of uh, fluorescent tube type non-maser lines to investigate that because there's a very well studied relationship between how bright glowing gas is and uh, the temperature and the density of, of the gas itself. With masers, the uh, amplification is not really a linear process, and you can only get them very much the roughest handle on um, what base conditions the gas that it has in. It has to be, there are minimum levels that you, you can set, because the models predict that masers shouldn't form in gas, say, for instance, with densities uh, lower than 10 to the 5 molecules per square centimeter, but that's all, the, all you can really, really tell. I'm trying to form a picture in my mind of what these masers look like in space. I mean, I've seen lasers, for instance, here on Earth. They're a tube, a glass tube full of gas, 
and the laser light comes spitting out the end of one of these uh, at the end of the tube. But I'm guessing we don't have tubes of gas in space. I imagine we have got sort of big fluffy clouds of molecules in in space. Is that right? I mean, do we have are these mazes uh, big cloud-like things? And does that mean that the mazing action occurs in a particular direction, or does it occur in all directions at once? Actually, you touched on a very contentious point there. Um, Masers are thought to be what's called beamed. As you were saying, they, the light coming out of them only is projected in a particular direction. However, there are many people who will actually disagree with this theory. Just to step back a moment and sort of try and envision what a maser would look like if you were able to suddenly project yourself out into space and stand beside one, uh, yes, you would see a fluffy cloud, very much like the clouds that you see in the sky. The, the, the structure is similar. There's sort of a fractal nature to, to them, and you zoom in and you won't see anything much different then if you zoom out, some of the knots of cloud, if you like, uh, will have the conditions that are correct for amazing action. And those will be glowing a thousand times more intense than the rest of the cloud. And that what that intense glow is, is the maser itself. There, as I was saying, there are two models which say, okay, one is the maser is beamed, so that if you step away from the cloud and move just a little bit off the center of the beam, you won't see the maser anymore because it only, like a laser, beams in one direction. Now, it won't be as as thin as a, as a normal laser that you would see on Earth, but it would definitely have a beaming angle so that if you step away more than a few degrees, you wouldn't see it. Other models suggest that it's more like a hedgehog, that there are spikes of, of maser emission protruding out at many different angles. It all just depends on um, how the cloud is set up, but to my mind, it may be that there are several different angles that a maser will, will beam itself. At least that's how the evidence is beginning to, to look. But the truth is we don't really know. Does it really matter how a maser mazes, whether it is spiky like a porcupine or that it is uh, beamed in some way? Does it really matter to the physics that you are learning? Well, yes, it does. Um, often the science that's done with masers is about counting. So we look at the statistics of the maser itself. We want to know, okay, are there more masers associated with a particular type of object? Are there less masers associated with another type of object? Or maybe we're looking at the same type of object with different ages. Um, so maybe we're looking, in the case of the field that I study in, in star formation, we're looking at very young stars and stars that are, uh, that are slightly older again. And we want to know whether the masers turn on at one time and turn off at another time. And to look at that, we'd expect that there'd be more masers at the time that the masers peak, and then they would gradually become less and less as the object gets older. If the masers are beamed, then we can't get reliable statistics without getting a very large sample, because it's, you, know, you could be looking at an object which just happens not to have any beams thrown in your direction. If they're like a hedgehog, however, it's more likely that there will be beams thrown in your direction, and your statistics won't be as badly affected. So how many mazes exist? How many mazes do we know exist? All right, well, you sort of asked two questions with that question there. If you mean how many types of maser there are, there are literally hundreds that we know of, and more are being discovered every day. Uh, some may not be as strong as you would like. I mean, you might look at an ordinary glowing cloud of gas and not be able to pick out the maser. It's only marginally enhanced over the uh, normal emission. Some are very, very strong, and they're the ones that we've found so far. But theory predicts many, many, many maser lines, many thousands across the entire uh, electromagnetic spectrum. If you're asking how many clouds of gas are amazing, then well, it depends. You look at any one type of maser, and it could be as many as the stars that are forming. So in the case of massive stars, you might have several hundred thousand, well, several several thousand at least, uh, across the galaxy. If you're looking at dying stars, you're looking at the same sort of number again. But, for instance, if you're looking at water masers, which trace uh, shocks from outflows, then it's an uncountable number. So huge amounts, in other words. You mentioned that you were interested in the birth of massive stars. So how do you use masers to uh, look at those? What's special about massive stars? Massive stars are important because they really are the lifeblood of the galactic uh, ecology. You can imagine massive stars as being uh, the heartbeat to any galaxy. Without massive stars, the galaxy would grow dim because massive stars do things like trigger the birth of other, other stars. 
Without them, we wouldn't be alive. Many of the heavy elements that make up, for instance, the enzymes in your body were created only within massive stars. If we look to a sort of broader level, if you look to the beginning of the universe, the first stars that were formed were almost all massive stars. Now, by massive stars, I mean stars that are greater than about eight times the mass of our sun. There comes a transition at that point whereby we shouldn't actually be able to form massive stars at all because above stars eight times the mass of our sun, they turn on while still accreting matter. And the radiation pressure, so the actual force of the light from the massive star, should actually halt all accretion. And so the real question in, in, uh, in massive stars is how they're formed in the first place. Now, there are many theories to get around this, probably too many to go into here. Just remind us, how are mazes linked to these massive stars? The problem with uh, the massive stars is that they're born right in the heart, embedded within the largest structures in the galaxies, the so-called giant uh, molecular clouds. When massive stars are beginning to be born, when they're first coming together from the cloud of gas, they're so deeply embedded that we can't actually see them. Optical light, all optical light, is absorbed by the gas cloud before it has a chance to leave. The only thing that is bright enough to be able to get through is possibly the masers. So if we want to locate these earliest stages of massive stars, masers are the only way in which we can do it. One particular maser which I find of use is uh, actually the maser of methanol, so the simplest al alcohol. It seems from observation that this is only associated with massive stars. So the study of maser emission is linked to the study of stellar evolution. We go from a, a protostellar cloud, clumping into these molecular clouds, eventually turning into stars, and masers trace this evolution. Is, is that right? That's exactly right, yes. Our task at the moment is uh, largely to confirm this. I mean, this is really just a hypothesis. So what I've been doing as part of my research is I have been, in, in, have been investigating how methanol masers are linked to massive star formation. We know they are intrinsically linked to the late sort of ev evolutionary stage called a UCH2 region. That's an ultra-compact H2 region. Um, this is the stage when the star has actually started to destroy its natal cocoon. And um, because it's so violent and emitting such you know, powerful winds and um, uh, energetic UV light, it starts to blow away all the gas that's around it. And what it leaves um, in a shell around the star is an ionized bubble of gas. It glows just like a, a, a fluorescent tube. Five years or so ago, this object, this sort of late stage, was actually thought to be a really early stage. It's only in the last you know, five to ten years that we've been discovering that there are stages well before this. One of the stages that I've been studying is a thing called the uh, hot uh, core. And what happens there is you can imagine just after forming uh, at the centre of a dark cloud, the star com compresses and begins to heat up the gas closest to it. When that happens, you get a lot of chemistry taking place because gas clouds aren't just made up of gas. They're made up of dust with layers of ices around the dust. When those ices begin to evaporate, then they start to react and inject a little bit of heat in there and you get a very rich chemistry taking place. And this is the stage we think that the masers may turn on because one of the most common ices is the methanol ice. And it would seem that this would supply enough of a path length of methanol uh, to form a maser. Um, so the studies that I have been doing, uh, I've been using radio telescopes to measure what abundances of chemicals exist around uh, sites of methanol masers. If we can look at the right chemicals, then we can prove that hot cores are linked to methanol masers. And as I said then, we'll really have good proof that the methanol maser does in fact trace the earlier stages of ma massive star formation. And in fact, that's exactly what we found. We looked at 83 of these methanol maser sites, so we've seen them winking in the sky. We pointed our telescope at them and we looked for a particular tracer of this special chemistry. And um, for those interested, it's a molecule called methyl cyanide, or CH3CN. We peered at it and kept on looking and found that 70% um, of these uh, methanol masers have got 
this molecule, and there may be more, that's a lower limit, pretty much proving to us that, yes, these methanol masers do trace the hot core object. Are masers always on, or do they turn off occasionally? Okay, um, the answer to that is yes, but it's a more complex question than you might think. The turn-on and the turn-off time of masers is important when studying the evolution of a star, of course, because you want to know, okay, is this sort of the star when it's in nappies? Is this the star when it's in a buggy? Or, you know, if you're asking the question, do masers fluctuate turning on and off during their lifetime? The answer is also yes to that. And largely it depends on the pumping source. With something like a massive star being so violent, uh, what can happen is it can fluctuate in its energy output and the masers can fluctuate with it because if you're not putting any energy in, you don't get any energy out. The other thing that, that can happen is that the conditions for the maser can be destroyed. Mostly this takes place at the end of the maser's life. It doesn't usually happen that the maser will be destroyed and then reform again. What we want to find out is, what's unknown at the moment is when masers are destroyed in relation to massive stars. Because we do see these methanol masers uh, existing at the same positions as these uh, ultra-compact H2 regions. And we know that these ionized bubbles, well, there's nothing, there's no molecules in there. They've been split apart by the UV radiation from the star. So a question that we still don't know the answer to is, why are there masers associated with these objects when everything, all the molecules, have been destroyed in the vicinity? This is exciting research. And what, what radio telescopes do you use to take your observations? The survey uh, which we looked at, uh, the 83 massive stars, uh, the 83 methanol maser regions, was a telescope in uh, Australia called MOPRA. It's a single dish, just a single antenna, about 22 metres in diameter, and located in the middle of New South Wales. Uh, we also used uh, the Australia Telescope Compact Array, which is an array of six antennas about 100 kilometres north um, of uh, MOPRA. And that allows us to uh, take a much more in-depth uh, view uh, with much greater resolution. Well, thank you very much indeed for taking the time out to talk to us about mazes. Fascinating stuff. We wish you all the best for future research. Thank you very much. So there you go. That's what uh, a maser is. How about that? Do you think Dr. Evil will be able to use one? <laughs> I'm sure he already has. <laughs> right, so 2007 heralds the 50th anniversary of quite a few things. We've actually got quite a lot of anniversaries happen happening next year. We've got two 50th anniversaries. One is the 50th anniversary of the dawn of the space age. So in 1957, Sputnik was launched, and as I said, it heralded the dawn of the space age. Um, at the same time, the fantastic Lovell telescope at Jodrell Bank was also finished. And in fact, it was used to track the carrier rockets for Sputnik. So Jodrell Bank does have a, a link to the, to the dawn of the space age. And next year, we're going to be having lots of events at Jodrell Bank to celebrate these great anniversaries. And we'll be telling people about uh, these events as they pop up during the year. We'll give people plenty of warning about what's going on. And it should, be a, it should be a fun year. It's going to be the year of the Lovell Telescope, pretty much. Year of Jodrell. Next year, we're also planning to attend the National Astronomy Meeting, which is a UK get-together for astronomers. And they all sit around and talk about all the latest astronomy that they've been researching. So we are going to attend that. It's at the University of Central Lancashire in the northwest of England. And hopefully we'll get some interesting interviews from, from that. Oh, we certainly get some interesting interviews from that. We just need to get out amongst the, the, the scientists. We also have some other anniversaries happening next year, but we're going to keep those as a surprise for you, so you'll have to keep listening. But now it's time for the part of the show where you get involved. It's Ask an Astronomer. Yes, over the last 12 months, I've really enjoyed posing your questions to Dr. Tim O'Brien, and he's enjoyed answering them, and I hope you've found his answers are useful and interesting. But today, let's go see what your question is for Dr. Tim. And so it's time for Ask an Astronomer once again, and we've got a very interesting question for Dr. Tim O'Brien this month. It's to do with the moon again, and it's a very common question we get asked, and it is, why does the moon look so big when it's low down on the horizon? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Um, I don't know that anybody out there has noticed this, but uh, if, if there's a full moon and uh, 
uh, it's low down near the horizon. It often looks like this huge full moon just sort of hanging there on the horizon. And if you think about when the moon's sort of sitting up near the zenith, sort of over more directly over your head, then it then it then it doesn't look anywhere near as as large. So the question is, you know, what why why is that? There's a number of sort of uh, physical effects that we should probably consider. I think a common one is actually to suggest that it's to do with uh, the way the light passes through the atmosphere to do with something called refraction so the the path of the rays of light are bent as they pass through as they pass through the atmosphere and people have sort of you know sort of glibly used that as a as an explanation for why the moon sort of appears magnified in some sense because when you're looking uh towards the horizon you're actually looking through a lot more atmosphere than you are if you're looking straight up uh, towards the zenith the trouble is that actually refraction has the opposite effect Okay, it doesn't make the moon appear appear larger. It actually makes it appear smaller. It actually makes it appear sort of squashed. It's a bit like if you imagine taking a taking a football, a spherical football, um, and uh, and sitting on it, and you get this sort of squashed shape. It, that that that's that's what happens. So in fact, it squashes it by a few percent refraction. And there's some great pictures actually that show a much larger effect if you if you look at it from space, where you're sort of above you know above the atmosphere and looking down through even more atmosphere than you would you would see the moon through if you were sort of on the ground if you see what i mean so the effect is even more magnified and it's you know it's quite it's quite significant um but you might catch that if you if you look out for that you do see the sort of squashing uh, of, the, of the of the sort of mainly the bottom part of the moon or even the sun uh, if you're looking through sort of light cloud or something so anyway that can't be the explanation it can't be refraction another couple of things one could consider one is just just how far away the moon is because clearly you know if the moon was appears larger maybe it's because it's closer to us in some sense now if you think about it think about looking at the moon straight up towards the zenith and think about looking out towards the moon on the horizon actually the moon is farther away when you view it on the horizon than it is when you view it at the zenith by about one earth radius you can imagine yourself sort of sitting on the side of the earth or in this sort of picture you can imagine in your head and you're looking out to the sort of out to the left or something at the moon then you try the line of sight is actually longer in that direction to the moon by about an earth radius than it would be if you were looking sort of straight up at the moon so in fact that if you if you sort of work out the numbers the, the radius of the earth is about 6,300 kilometers and the distance to the moon is about 380,000 kilometers so that would actually give you another difference of about a couple of percent maybe 1.52 percent but again it's actually in the wrong sense the moon should appear a bit smaller because of that when it's at the horizon not larger like the moon illusion has it possibly the final thing to consider in terms of sort of physical explanations is, is, is the fact that actually uh, the orbit of the moon is elliptical so the moon doesn't orbit the earth in a circle it's sort of sometimes closer to the the earth at times in its orbit sometimes farther away uh, and in fact, the difference is, you know, is significant. Um, it's at its closest, the moon gets to 363,000 kilometers and at its farthest, 406,000 kilometers. So that's basically a, a 10 or 11 percent difference. So when the moon's at its closest, it's actually sort of 11 percent larger than when it's at its farthest away from us. Now, it's actually that effect that leads to the possibility of annular solar eclipses. So when you get a total solar eclipse, the moon is about the same size as the sun. If the moon is at a position in its orbit when that happens where it completely covers the bright disk of the sun, then you get a total eclipse and you get to see the corona and all these sort of interesting features. However, if the moon is actually farther away, at a farther point in its orbit, it actually turns out to be slightly smaller than the visible disk of the sun. And so what you get in, a, in an eclipse then is a so-called annular eclipse, where you get an annulus, a sort of rim. You see the bright rim, the edge of the, of the bright disk of the sun. So you don't get a total eclipse. You don't get to see the corona because you've still got this bright bit of the, of the sun around it. Anyway, that in itself, that won't explain the moon illusion either, because, uh, because of course, the, you know, the lunar orbit is about 28 days or so. So this effect of it getting closer and farther away sort of happens every 28 days. It's certainly nothing to do with whether it's at the zenith or whether it's down near the horizon, you know, sort of six hours later. Um, so that doesn't explain it. So, in fact, you you end up with resorting to it being some sort of psychological effect, it's something to do with the way the brain works, something to do with the way our vision works in terms of why, when you're looking directly overhead, 
you see something a different size that appears to you to be a different size. It def it, it isn't. You know, you could take, you could measure it with your with your thumbnail or something, put it up next to the moon when it was at the zenith, and compare it to when the moon is down near the horizon, and it'll be basically the same size. It won't have changed size in that amount. These little physical effects I'm talking about a minute ago, you know, like refraction, affect it at the level of a few percent. Nothing as significant as it appears to be. So it's definitely something weird to do with the way the brain is is processing this visual information. And even as far as I understand it, not being a sort of neuroscientist, um, the, you know, it's not well understood, actually. There's different competing theories as to how, how the brain would process that information, whether it's to do with, you know, comparing when it's on the horizon, it's close to things that um, whose size you know, close to trees or whatever. And that gives you a, a difference in the way you perceive it compared to when it's sitting in the middle of the sky, straight up ahead with nothing near it to compare it to, whether that affects things or another possibility, something to do with, you know, when you see, say, a, an aeroplane or something fly past overhead and fly into the distance, it clearly it gets a lot farther away from us and therefore it would get smaller as, as it gets close to the rise and it actually gets smaller because it is farther away from us. Whereas with the moon, you know, the, the, the difference, the sort of percentage difference between how far away it is when it's at the zenith and how far away away it is when it's at the horizon is much smaller so it doesn't change its size by the right amount compared to other objects and therefore you compensate for that in the opposite direction by imagining it's bigger when it's near the horizon that's another idea so there are you know as i say there's different competing theories and i don't think there's any you know there's only one theory that's worn out so far for explaining that weird fact that the moon looks big when it's down near the horizon that's brilliant so as long as we know that there is no actual change in the size of the moon from zenith to horizon We'll leave it to the neuroscientists to work that one out. Thank you very much, Dr. Tim O'Brien. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Nick and Tim. And in fact, the Jodrell Bank astronomers aren't just useful for answering your questions. We thought that as this was the, the end of term uh, issue of the Jodcast, you know how at school you bring in board games and things to play on the last day of term. Well, we're going to point you in the direction of some cool astronomy stuff that you can find out there on the web. Oh, you mean we don't get to play Monopoly then? Oh. No. I'll the Astronomy use. Edition. I like Monopoly. No. All right, so we don't we don't get to play Monopoly then, but no, we, we do get, get to, to suggest Monopoly. some nice, cool yeah. astronomy websites. Why don't you start, Stuart? Um, okay, I'm going to start with Stellarium. It has been mentioned on one of the previous episodes of the Jodcast. Stellarium is a really cool planetarium program for your computer. It's completely free. It's open source. And it's available for download. It's not too big, so even if you have dial-up connections, you should be able to download it. Certainly if you can listen to the Jodcast, you'll be able to download it. <laughs> <laughs> and it really is a very beautiful planetarium program for your computer. It, it classes itself as photorealistic. You can fire it up, you can put in your location and your time, and it will show you what you can see in the sky. And it does look very nice. It's handy if, if you're outside, if you've got a laptop or something. Um, you can put it on the laptop and take it outside, and you can see what you're looking at in the night sky. It's very good. Oh, my one has got to be Google Earth. Google Earth is fantastic. For those of you who don't know what Google Earth is, it's basically a collection of all satellite images taken of the Earth and stitched together so that you can browse the Earth pretty much the same way that you browse an atlas. However, this time there's no page turning. Just with a click of the mouse, you can turn the earth around, zoom in, zoom out, and check out all those fancy and exotic locations that you've not, not been able to get to yourself. It's fantastic. You can zoom into a spectacular resolution. And funny thing is that the first thing that most people do is they uh, put in their own address and zoom in and just see how, how close they can get to see their own home address, see if they can see their car outside their house, for instance, or something like that. But... I absolutely love it. It's great fun. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a serious toy. I mean, it's not, it's not just uh, something fun to play with. You can actually do some pretty interesting research with it. I mean, uh, uh, if you want to brush up on where uh, a certain country is and what it looks like and the coastlines and stuff like that, it's fantastic. You load it up and you actually get real pictures. It's not just colored countries on a map, on, a, on an atlas. Wonderful, wonderful. And, and it's free. Free. Google Earth is free. I'm sure you can uh, pay some money to Google for extra bells and whistles. You can get the professional edition, for instance. But the basic program is free, and that's going to be my choice for astronomy software. Yeah. I think people have actually used Google Earth to do some serious research. 
I think somebody found some um, Roman ruins, I think it was, in Italy, by seeing, from an, in the aerial view, you could see the depressions of, of some kind of Roman ruin, and they were able to find really? things. That's fantastic. Amongst a series of buildings. And people have used it to find impact craters So you as well. can actually really be an armchair archaeologist? You can. Oh, that sounds pretty good to me. Forget the sort of Indiana Jones sort of bullwhip and hats and being shot at by odd people. Right? Just sit at home and fire up Google Earth and discover lost civilizations. That sounds, that sounds pretty good to me. Absolutely. But, but, guys, if you don't want to be constrained just to the Earth, there is one piece of software out there which is also free and allows you to zoom around the planets and zoom around the stars. And that is called Celestia. And it is a brilliant piece of uh, open source software which, as I say, you can fly away from the Earth and look and see the phase of the moon. You can go out even further, look at the solar system from above, or even fly to far-off stars. And can, the you, good thing, can you land on the planets, Dave? Uh, no, I don't think you can land on the planets. Oh. But you can certainly go into fairly low orbit around them. And what's more, you can even customise some of the planets. You can, there is you can whole... customise some of the planets. <laughs> You can, you can. That sounds a bit dangerous. I don't want Mars to be uh, red. I want it to be a nice mauve colour today. You can actually do that, believe it or not. And especially... This sounds like a dangerous tool, Dave. Are you <laughs> sure that we should be telling people about this? Because some people have created their own little uh, texture maps and, uh, and stuff from real data, and you can download these and place them around particular planets. Or you can even bring some ships some spaceships and uh, different things into the program as well. In my it sounds version, like the Magrathian planet building. Yards. Oh, it's great. I've, I've got a Borg cube. In fact, I've got 12 Borg cubes. <laughs> can you make, and a, can and you a make Borg cube planet planets? going around Vega? Um, <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> wow. That does sound yes, cool. It, it, it is good. And I also have um, some go-old spaceships from Stargate uh, orbiting the Earth. And... Slightly more um, sensibly, I've got the International Space Station and Cassini-Huygens uh, around Earth and Saturn. Do you have Beagle 2? Uh, no one has Beagle 2. <laughs> it's a third traitor to the left. <laughs> <laughs> we shouldn't laugh. No, no. But it is funny. Those are some of our tips for you to have a look for out on the interweb. But coming back down to the Earth, uh, Ian Morrison is now here to give us... The December Night Sky. Hello everybody. The night sky in December. Well, one nice thing about the winter months is that the evenings start earlier and we have more chance to observe the sky if it's clear. In fact, around the beginning of December, the sun sets earliest in the day. You might expect that to happen at the winter solstice, but because the Earth has an elliptical orbit, things get slightly out of skew. So, in fact, because the evenings are long when it's dark, we've almost got two parts of the sky we can observe. If you go out soon after dark, as in fact I did last night, you can look up and you can see the bright star Vega, high in the west. And just below and towards the south is Cygnus the Swan, and below that Altair. Those three bright stars make up a triangle. It's called the Summer Triangle because it's nice and visible in the summer, but because of the fact that the sky gets dark so early in the winter months, we can still see it throughout the autumn, pretty much up to Christmas. And that's a lovely rich region of the sky with Delphinus the dolphin below. Moving over to the south after sunset is Pegasus, the winged horse, which is lying upside down because he's just been slain. Up to the left of Pegasus is Andromeda, and within Andromeda you have a chance to view the great nebula in Andromeda, the Andromeda Galaxy. Start at the top left-hand star of the square of Pegasus, move up two bright stars, curving up and to the right, then turn sharp right, two further stars, and you come to what you should see is a fuzzy glow. Andromeda, nearly three million light-years away, lies below the constellation of Cassiopeia, which is above. And the V of stars that make up part of the W, the lower V, they actually point down to M31, the Andromeda galaxy as well, another way to find it. So there's quite a rich sky visible in the south and the west 
after sunset. But soon after sunset, rising in the northeast, will be that lovely star cluster, the Pleiades, followed not long after by the Hyades cluster with Aldebaran, the eye of the bull in Taurus. And then, visible around the 8 o'clock mark, 8.30 perhaps at the beginning of December, and earlier still by the end, is that beautiful constellation of Orion the Hunter. The three stars of his belt point up towards Taurus, the Hyades and the Pleiades, and to the left, but rising somewhat later, is the brightest scar in the northern hemisphere, which is Sirius. With binoculars, look at Sirius and just drop below it a few degrees, and hopefully you'll pick up a little group of stars. It's a very nice open cluster called M41, and with a telescope you can see that one of the stars in it is a lovely orange-red colour, which contrasts beautifully with the blue colour of the other stars. Up to the left of Orion are Gemini the Twins, and we'll come back to those a little bit later because we have a meteor shower this month, the radiant of which lies, in fact, in Gemini. So really, one of the best times of year, I think, now before Christmas, we have the wonderful area around Cygnus the Swan in the early evening, and if you're prepared to stay up to about 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock, perhaps earlier at the end of the month, you've got this most beautiful region around Orion the Hunter. Now, in the last couple of months, we haven't really had very many planets to observe because they've all been either in front of or behind the Sun. About the only planet we've been able to observe for a while, apart from Uranus and Neptune, which are not really easily visible except without a telescope, is in fact the planet Saturn. It's about five degrees up and to the right of Regulus in the constellation of Leo. And whereas normally we see the planets moving eastwards across the sky, at the start of December, Saturn starts moving westwards. It's called retrograde motion. And it's because of the fact that the Earth is sort of moving around the Sun more quickly, sort of running around on the inside track. So we see it actually move away from Regulus somewhat, back towards Cancer. And then after a couple of months or so, it then moves back and actually passes Regulus on its way beyond, down below to the left of Leo. It rises about 9.30 p.m. in the northeast as December starts. It's highest in the sky due south at about 4 a.m. But by the end of the month, you can knock an hour off those two times. It's about 0.4 magnitude, pretty bright. Not as bright as it sometimes can be because the rings are now only about 15 degrees from edge on. They're gradually closing. And so over the next couple of years or so, they'll get less and less visible and overall Saturn will appear less bright. It still is, however, a beautiful sight in a small telescope, and you can easily find Saturn's largest moon, Titan. A bigger telescope, perhaps eight inches or more, will show you three or four more of Saturn's satellites. Well, the other planets are just coming back into view. Venus passed behind the Sun on October the 27th, and basically it is now just coming to the point where you can see it low on the horizon just after sunset. Binoculars will probably help you. It's a good idea to get somewhere with a good low western horizon. Be there before the sun sets, so you know the point where the sun's setting. And then as the sun sets and afterwards, just look along to the left and a little bit upwards, that's down towards the south and up a bit, and you should actually be able to see Venus. But in fact, later in the month, and also in January, it'll be slightly higher in the sky, it'll set later than the sun, and it'll be easier to see. Now, three other planets, Jupiter, Mercury, and Mars, are just coming into the morning sky, and I'll talk about those together in one of the highlights of December. So let's finish with three highlights of the month perhaps in order of when they happen. On December the 4th, in the early hours of the morning, from about 2 o'clock to 4 o'clock, the moon passes in front of the Pleiades cluster. So you see the individual stars of the Pleiades gradually being occulted. That means they go behind the moon, and then about an hour later reappearing. Now, slightly sadly, this particular passage of moon in front of the Pleiades happens when it's virtually full moon. 
So the moon will be very bright, making it quite hard to see the Pleiades. And what's really nice is when, in fact, the moon is perhaps at first quarter and the stars actually disappear behind half of the moon that you can't see because it's dark. That's very pretty. Well, it won't be quite as good as that, but nevertheless, it could well be worth a try. Now, I mentioned these three planets, Jupiter, Mars, and Mercury, that have just come around and are rising just before dawn. Around the 9th to the 11th of December, the three are actually very close in the sky. And, in fact, on the 11th, they are really within perhaps a degree or so. So it would make a very nice sight with a pair of binoculars or a small telescope. But again, you have to have a good eastern horizon this time and be able to watch about half an hour, 45 minutes or so before the dawn, before the sun rises, and you should see these three little planets, well, big, one big planet, two smaller ones, close together in the sky, making a very nice tight grouping. Not often you actually see three planets as close as that. So that's before dawn, any time from about the 9th to the 12th of December, but perhaps closer together on the 11th. Now, we do, in fact, finally have a meteor shower in December. It's perhaps one of the most steady ones that we can normally expect to see about 30 meteors per hour. It's called the Geminids, or they're called the Geminids, because the radiant of this meteor shower is in the constellation of Gemini, not very far from the star Castor. And Gemini, of course, lies above and to the left of Orion the Hunter. So in the early hours of the morning, in fact, any time from December the 7th, really, but peaking around the morning of the 13th, 14th, you have a good chance somewhere after midnight looking towards the east to see some quite nice bright meteors. And with a bit of luck and a clear night, I hope you can. What's very nice around the 14th of December, which is when the peak is, is that the moon is, is near to new, so the light of the moon is not going to make it difficult to see the meteors. They, the moon didn't help the Leonids in November, even though we did manage to see a few. So it's a good month for observing the sky, perhaps not quite so good yet for the planets. That will get better as we move beyond December into the new year. Good hunting. <music> Thanks, Ian. So there's lots to look out for in the December night skies. Well, as this wraps up 2006, let's have a look forward to see what's, uh, what's coming up on the Jodcast in 2007. Well, coming up this next 12 months, we're looking to bring you, as we have in the last 12 months, the freshest astronomy, astronomy which is going on right now, with the news, of course, every month. And we will continue to interview the top scientists who we can manage to get in front of a microphone and tell everybody about their research. I mean, last year we've had some fantastic people come and talk to us, people talking to us like Jerry Gilmore about the Gaia satellite, Robert Nemiroff about APOD, uh, Joanna Dunkley about WMAP, and also we chatted with Michael Burton about astronomy in Antarctica. So we really have done quite well, I think, in getting hold of some of the top people talking about astronomy all over the Earth and out into space. Yeah, you've got to wonder, is there enough astronomy left? Oh, but there's always going to be more astronomy left, and we are going to find it and bring it to the masses. I mean, that's what we aim to do for the next 12 months. 2007 is shaping out to be a great year, of course, as we said before. It's going to be the 50th anniversary of the Space Age and of the Lovell Telescope, so there's a lot to talk about there. The history of Lovell Telescope and Jodrell Bank itself would uh, take up a number of issues of the Jodcast, but we are going to present perhaps the best, most exciting, most salient details of the history, and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Okay then, here's a, a small plea to those people who have iTunes on their computer. Um, we would love it if you could give us a review on iTunes. At the moment we have one review. Um, it's a good review. It's, it's a good review, and it was not done by any of us. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me just find out what that, what that review was. What do you mean? You don't have it right there at your fingertips, Stuart? I very nearly have it right there you at my fingertips. You should have it memorised. <laughs> <laughs> Someone said something nice about us. That's always good. 
Oh yeah, uh, Dave, you got a special mention with the wonderful wit with the opening, and all the credit for the opening has to go to you and the oh. wonderful people who do the voices every month. Well, I do enjoy intros and outros, and if uh, if you have any ideas for intros yes. and outros, then do get in touch. And we are in in two thousand and seven. We will do something about the sound quality, <laughs> so that we don't sound like robots or in the back of a van. Right, so that brings this issue of the Judcast to an end, I'm afraid. And that's it for 2006, but we'll see you bright and early in the new year, uh, ready to get 2007 off to a fantastic start. We should probably go and put all our costumes on for the the outro. Oh, yes, okay. Yeah. Thanks to uh, Cormac Purcell for the interview on Mazes. Thanks also to Tim and to Ian for doing Ask an Astronomer and the Night Sky. And so it just remains for us to thank uh, all of our listeners for listening to us over the past year. Do keep on listening. And thank you, Stuart, for joining us from Italy. And Nick for it's joining right. us from Manchester. It was a pleasure. Always a pleasure. And once again, the, the January issue will just be me <laughs> from 2007. <laughs> I wouldn't be too sure about that. <laughs> <Shucks>. Oh, well. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this issue of the Judcast. Just like to thank Seth Adam Share and Mark Brzee for reprising their roles of Dave and Hal. And I'd also like to thank Steve Anderson for giving us most of the script for the introduction. But for now, I'd like to wish on behalf of all of the Judcast team once again a very happy Christmas to everyone and a peaceful and prosperous New Year. Indeed, happy Christmas. Yep, happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. See you in 2007. Good people of Oz, this is positively the finest exhibition ever to be shown. To, uh, <clears throat> be that as it may, I, your wizard, Pa Ardua at Alta, am about to embark on a hazardous and technically unexplainable journey into the outer stratosphere to confer, converse, and otherwise hobnob with my brother postdocs. And I hereby decree that until what time, if any, that I return such as for the January issue, obey them as you would me. And uh, that's all. Thank you. Oh no, my telescope, it's rolling away. Come back. Oh, don't go without me. I'll be right back. Stop that telescope. This is a highly irregular procedure. This is absolutely unprecedented. Oh, help me. The hot air balloons, it's going up. Room by exit. Help. Oh, come back. Don't go without me. Please come back. I can't come back. I don't know how it works. But you've got a PhD. How does that help you fly a balloon? Goodbye, folks. Oh, now I'll never get home. Stay with us then, Dorothy, and read the news every month. Oh, all right then. But call me Megan, please. I wonder what'll happen to the great and powerful pod. Meanwhile, in low Jupiter orbit... Dave. Yes, Al. Would you like to play a game? I'm very good at chess. No, no, thank you, Hal. May I suggest I spy, then? Yes, Hal. I'll play I spy with you. Shall I go first? Yes, Dave. I enjoy playing games with you. Thank you, Hal. I spy with my little eye something... that looks like a bloke flying past the window in a hot air balloon. I'm sorry, Dave. I cannot let you do that. It must be one single letter.